Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join Tiffany and her fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Hello and welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official podcast of the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. You could also call us IFAA, that's short too. <laughs> so this is Tiffany. I am one of your co-hosts today, and I have with me another co-host, Danielle. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Tiffany. How are you? I'm doing good today. How are you? I'm good. Hey, tell tell everyone a little bit about yourself. So uh, as Tiffany said, my name is Danielle and I am a school teacher or I was a school teacher before I retired on disability uh, for 13 years. And I wanted to nominate this topic today so that we could talk about um, discrimination in the workplace uh, of people with disabilities because the last five years of my career were really a rough time for me and they were very damaging for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that I'm trying to do now in my new phase of life is to try and help people who are in the spot that I was in a few years ago. Okay, great. So that is the topic today. We are, we're going to talk about discrimination in the workforce when it comes to disabilities and in, in our case with AI arthritis diseases. And you too are diagnosed, Danielle, correct? I am. So my diagnosis story could be like a whole episode itself. <laughs> that is so not <laughs> uncommon. So, <laughs> Right? It's kind of long and complicated, but the, the, the too long didn't read version is that I have rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune liver disease called primary biliary cholangitis, which is pretty rare and very few people have heard of it, but it basically amounts to autoimmune disease killing your liver. Mm. And I was just diagnosed last week actually with axial spondyloarthritis. So. which is also my diagnosis, the non-radiographic version. So I get it though, because it's, I started at rheumatoid arthritis. It's just been all, all yeah. over the place. And again, that's, yeah, that, yeah, that is so not uncommon. But we're excited to um, do this today. And Danielle, I'm really excited to have you as a co-host today. So, you know, let, let's, get, let's dive right into this. You know, you did nominate this. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, what a great topic. This is something so relevant. I know we've been seeing so many people talking about this in the community. Tell us a little bit about your story and why you nominated this. So, like I said, I was a teacher and I was uh, very successful early on in my career. I had students that had amazing test scores. Um, for most of my career, I taught advanced placement and you know, my kids did amazing on their test and I had uh, exemplary performance reviews and everything was great. Mm -hmm. I was nominated multiple times for teacher of the year for my school. And right before I started having symptoms, I was promoted and made the advanced placement coordinator. 
Um, so I was in charge of all the AP courses in the school. Mm-hmm. And in 2010, I started having some strange problems with my shoulder and my back. Mm. And I was in a lot of pain and I wasn't sleeping well. And um, so I appeared kind of frazzled at work sometimes. And my bosses said, you know, hey, what's going on with you? Like, Mm -hmm. you need to get this together. And I was like, yep, okay, no problem. I'm on it. And so I just started working harder, working more hours and, you know, trying to compensate for um, my declining physical condition. (laughs) Which, by the way, doesn't help your declining physical condition. Does not help. (laughs) Yeah. Makes it a lot worse. And then in 2013, I started having um, activity. I now know it was activity. At the time, I didn't know what was happening to me. I started having arthritic uh, arthritic activity in my hip. Mm-hmm. And I was having difficulty standing to give lectures. I was having a hard time walking from my car to my class. And my supervisors took note again. And they said, hey, you know, I thought we were past this. What's going on with you? And I was like, I am in so much pain. I just cannot stand. I just really need to sit. And in our school, that was very frowned on. Um, oh. It was considered like uh, setting a poor example that it was very professional to be up and moving around and interacting with, with the kids. Um, and I said, you know, I just really, I really need to sit down. Um, and so they made me a floating teacher. They took my classroom away. So oh. I had to walk from one room to one room to one room um, and teach in different rooms throughout the day. And I didn't have a desk anymore. I had a cart that I pushed around. So even my workspace for my computer was standing. <laughs> Wait, hold on. So let me get this straight. Yes. You needed to sit. Yes. So instead, they had you walk from place to place and push a cart. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. Just make Because sense. they thought that it would um, encourage me to be more active and that then I wouldn't get so stiff. They were convinced I was getting stiff because I was sitting down too much. Okay. Because okay. they're doctors, I, I guess. I was just, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it didn't help that this whole time I'm going to different doctors and they're all telling me, well, you know, you need to sleep more or you need to exercise more, or Mm -hmm. maybe you should lose some weight or whatever. Nobody was actually testing me for, you know, any markers for autoimmune disease. So I didn't have a doctor's note with a diagnosis on it that said, here is the problem. And and these are the accommodations that this person needs, Um, which might have helped had it Mm -hmm. been early on. So then in, uh, let's see, I think it was 2014, I started having what I now know was a costo, co- costochondritis. Thank you. <laughs> I, that was my first symptom. So I'm very familiar. <laughs> yeah. Um, I started having costochondritis and it really restricted my ability to breathe. Mm-hmm. And so I was running out of breath a lot and my building just coincidentally had mold issues and yet. Mine too. Did it? <laughs> yes. I'm this... sorry. That's just, yes. That's okay. I was teaching in the same, I didn't know it after I left that the students I kept in contact with let me know that they were in the classroom that I taught in because I mm-hmm. was getting sick while I taught mm-hmm. and costochondritis was my first symptom. And they yep. let me know that they were in that exact room and somebody came in to clean out the radiator and everything. Mm-hmm. And they said there was black mold in it. Yeah. So I had, I got costochondritis and I had pneumonia twice in 18 months and I had bronchitis eight times in that same time period. So I was missing a lot of work because I was either hospitalized or sick. 
Mm. Um, always with doctor's notes and documentation and all that kind of thing, but didn't matter to them. So they started calling me in and having meetings with me where they said, you know, we're worried about you. We're really concerned about you. We don't think that teaching is in your best interest because you're missing so much work and you don't ever get well. You know, you return to work, but you're still coughing. You still look sick, you know, and then a week later you're out sick again. And it's not in the student's best interest to have a teacher who can't be here. So we really think that you need to resign. And, you know, I had a contract. They couldn't fire me, but they laid it out very plainly. We don't want you here. And I said, well, you know, I have three children. I can't pay my mortgage if I don't work. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't have the option to just stay home. So I'm going to have to keep working. I went to a doctor and now I finally had symptoms that somebody could measure and, Mm -hmm. you know, test and things like that. Um, And I was initially diagnosed with obstructive pulmonary disease which just means your lungs don't inflate correctly. Mm-hmm. And my doctor had me fill out paperwork for HR documenting my illness and said as an accommodation, they needed to put me in a classroom that had no carpet and where the humidity was very carefully controlled and the temperature was very carefully controlled because um, I'm also allergic to mold. And so any mold in the building would create a problem. And the doctor demanded an environmental study of my classroom. Mm. So they said no to all of the accommodations I requested, except for HR said, well, there's really no reason to say no to the environmental study. So they sent in a team and they found pathogenic mold growing under my desk, under my podium, behind the ceiling tiles. I mean, it was just all over the room. And they got me a new desk. They replaced my podium. They replaced the ceiling tiles, but they refused to move me out of the room. And I said, but the conditions that cause the mold to grow are still here. This room is still 86 degrees when I'm trying to teach in it. And, you know, we brought in agrometers that showed that the humidity was like 78%. Like, there's no way you're going to keep mold out of this room. It's just going to grow back. And they said it was unreasonable for me to be moved to a different classroom because it would inconvenience people. Okay. Wow. So what ended up, what was the the end here? So (laughs) the end point was I started having um, arthritic activity in my ankle and I was initially on crutches for several months. And uh, because of my back and my shoulder, my condition started to degrade pretty rapidly and I ended up in a wheelchair. And my orthopedist said, you know, this is ridiculous. You have to stop working. I said, but I can't because I can't qualify for disability or anything. I don't have a diagnosis. And he said, well, there's something wrong with you and we need to figure out what it is. Mm -hmm. And he actually aggressively pursued a rheumatological workup where they found lots of diagnoses. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. This is, this is a whole episode, uh, like a breakout in itself. I know we were talking before this, that that's topic itself, but that alone, what you just said is, is, is a breakout in its own. Wow. Um, And then he pulled me from work and I was on short-term disability and long-term disability. And I'm now applying for um, the uh, social security disability. Okay. Wow. So that was quite a lot. You know, I wrote down a, a couple of things that you said and what stood out. One of the things was, we don't think teaching is in your best interest. They also yeah. said not, not fair to students. And okay, that's, that's an employer's perspective and students paying or whatever. That's a different thing. Mm-hmm. But 
we don't think we don't think teaching is in your best interest. Yeah. I mean, I almost got tears in my eyes. I mean, I started. I didn't almost. I mean, I started. Yeah. I was like to have somebody decide for you that it's time mm-hmm. for you to stop your passion and your career. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's really hard. It's it was awful. It made me feel like I was worthless. And I started having intense issues with depression and anxiety. Um, I felt like I was no good. Mm-hmm. And what's crazy now, you know, several years from, yeah. removed from it and, and had, having had a lot of time to cope with the emotions, I realized how illogical that was. The entire time, this was a five-year period that this happened, they put me on evaluation four out of those five years. Normally you get evaluated every third year, but they kept trying to come up with evidence oh. to get rid of me. And all four years I received exemplary performance reviews. Because our performance evaluation is set by the state and it's based entirely on how the students are doing. So because I was doing my job and doing it well, um, my students were learning even though I was absent a lot, even though I couldn't breathe, even though I couldn't stand up and all that, my students were still thriving and they were still happy and they were still progressing. And you said you were nominated, you won favorite teacher and things too. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, how do you argue that? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> because you also said they said it's not it's not in your best interest. And then yeah. number two, it is not fair to the students. Yeah. The students are voting that you're their the, the best teacher. So clearly that right there is is yeah. incorrect. The other thing that you said was the that I, I just think is really important to note. This is pre-diagnosis. Yeah, it was all pre-diagnosis. Once I got a diagnosis, then I was pulled on disability so fast. I mean, mm. there was literally like maybe 10 days between oh, wow. diagnosis and leaving and never stepping foot in there again. But I had smaller diagnosis. You know, I had the mm-hmm. obstructive pulmonary right. disease diagnosis. Um, I had, oh, what did they call it? Degenerative disc disease, I think mm-hmm. is what they originally called what was happening with my back. You know, so it wasn't like I was not ever going to the doctor or they didn't know that something was wrong. They had a pile of medical documentation. Mm-hmm. Um, there just wasn't sort of one doctor that could step in and go, no, here's the big picture. This is why all of this is happening. This is how these symptoms fit together. Mm-hmm. But I think, honestly, one of the most eye-opening things for me in this experience is that before this happened to me, when I thought of discrimination, I thought of people with ill intentions, right? Like if you mm-hmm. discriminate against someone racially, it's because you're a bigot. If you mm-hmm. discriminate against um, a disabled person, then you're a mean person who, who, you know, is ableist and that kind of thing. And these supervisors, at least one of them had been my friend before this started, you know, attended my baby showers, like, wow. (laughs) Um, and I do believe that they believed what they were saying. Mm -hmm. I do think that they genuinely believed that it was not in my best interest to be there because they saw me getting sicker and they didn't understand why. And I do think that they genuinely believed it wasn't best for students, even in spite of the data, because they had so much internalized ableism that they just couldn't see how a teacher in a wheelchair could possibly be as good as a teacher who can move freely. And I don't think they recognized that that's what they were thinking, but I do think that that was sort of underlying all of this. Wow. That's really, that's powerful. I'm really sorry that, that you had to go through all of that, but I mean, there's so many, so many things that bullet points that we've kind of broken out here that are relevant to everything that, that you just said. 
Um, you know, and as far as as far as me, I am I sort of represent the perspective and the experience of somebody who was faced with it wasn't so much that I wasn't getting accommodations. I at the time was also a teacher. <laughs> I also I, mean, I have it right here on my wall. Favorite teacher award. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> so we have a lot in common. Had mold in my office. Um, and they they were trying to accommodate my schedule and to, to what I was asking for. I also did some public speaking where I would go to local high schools and teach different topics about things that we would teach in college and um, help develop uh, young people on deciding what their career path would be and, and things of that nature. But I had to carry a lot of stuff. So they really did. They bought me special bags and I I was lucky in that, but where mine ended up coming from was, I guess I would say, my, my own self-struggle with, well, okay, they've given me this, but now I'm going to have to ask for more because it's not enough. Mm-hmm. And, and I was not able, even with the adjustment of schedule, I could see that it was starting to wear uh, like it's like they felt really good about the adjustments that they had they were making, mm-hmm. and, but then it was okay. <laughs> we have this is this is starting to become really challenging. And then I ended up going to a, another college to teach, and it got. I ended up um, one semester I had no classes, but they still wanted me to tutor, and that's when I quit. I said, and I can't prove to this day that it had anything to do with what you know changing things up, but. It, it was it was very frustrating. And I had to ask myself, what am I going to do? Because the other thing is, even with these accommodations, I was exuding so much energy and having that normal work schedule mm-hmm. that I was realizing this isn't working for me. And when you know, as a teacher, there is it's kind of um, I just did a, a mini episode leading up to this on our unpredictable diseases in a predictable environment. And an example of a predictable environment would be an environment where there are set expectations like you have to be at this class at this time. There's Mm -hmm. no flexibility around that. And you have to be able to perform at this time. So I was having challenges, especially the stiffness in the morning and not being able to get out of bed. I had an eight o'clock class. There were just a lot of of complications with that. And it was a, a point where I had to make this choice. Do I take a different career? Mm-hmm. Or do I keep pushing for more accommodations? And for me, one of the what I ended up doing was realizing that I had the skill set to run this nonprofit and there was a need to focus just on the diseases that were autoimmune or autoinflammatory with the arthritic component, narrowing the 100 plus down to just 20 something. And so I was fortunate because we, because of that flexibility. And I want to, I wanted to preface my story mainly because there's the whole other perspective of that, that question, how much do I push? How much do I ask? When is it time to realize maybe this isn't what I'm able to do, which is a hard thing to accept, right? It is so hard. Very hard to just say, you know what? I don't know. Even with um, with alterations, if this is something because of the expected expectation of environment, the, the things that cannot change, the time that you must be there, that kind of thing. Um, 
uh, the, the need for flexibility. And uh, one, so one of the things we did at our nonprofit is we decided when we set up, we would never have a physical office, no matter how many employees, no matter how many volunteers. It would be virtual officing. We would be open 24-7, 365 days a year, never closed, no holidays. It's just because it needs to be that flexible, mm-hmm. <laughs> that flexible. And um, because of that, I honestly work six, uh, 70 plus, 80 often hours a week. And people say to me, how do you do that? And honestly, one reason is because I love what I do because, you know, then it's not really like work. But mm-hmm. the other thing is I sleep usually till I'm ready to wake up. That's what I do. I go to bed when I'm ready to go to bed and I don't schedule anything before 10 a.m. in the morning. I do not schedule more than two meetings a day. I I mean, I have it all laid out. If I have brain fog, I can walk away. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to question me. I I know when it comes. So I'll do something else. And then maybe I pick back up at 11 o'clock at night. But if I didn't have that flexibility, there is no way. I I know it 100%. I would not be able to work full time. I know, I know I wouldn't. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there's so much wrapped up in that because, you know, for one thing, we know that employers are starting to transition to more flexibility and work at home jobs and things like that, um, largely because of commutes and um, the impact of traffic congestion on employee Mm -hmm. productivity and the environment and all that kind of thing. So, in general, I think as time goes on, we'll start to see more of those flexible roles and that will be really helpful for our community. But I think also in some ways, it's, this is wrapped up in the delay of diagnosis problem that is so pervasive um, with rheumatic disease because by the time I was told definitively by anybody, you have a, a progressive illness, it is not going to get better. I was already too sick to go back to school to learn how to do something else or too sick to work any job, mm-hmm. you know, no matter how flexible it was. If I had had that diagnosis five years sooner, I could have transitioned to a different job maybe and been much happier for the last few years that I was able physically to work. And, you know, so that's a big part of it. But then also, and you touched on this so well, it's so emotionally hard for people when you're you've just been told you have this illness the whole future that you imagine for yourself is fundamentally changed and it can take some time to kind of adjust mentally to okay well maybe i'm not going to be the cheerleading coach when i'm 60 you know <laughs> or whatever right. you know and uh okay this this whole future this whole path that i created for myself is now got to radically change and you know that's very difficult to, to uh, come to grips with, especially if you are also immersed in a hostile work environment where people are m- being emotionally abusive to you. It's very easy instead of, instead of being able to look at that and go, okay, but I'm still me. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, may, I built a successful career once. I can build a successful existence for myself, even if it doesn't include paid work. After this, it's very hard to have that positive outlook when people are telling you that you're not good enough. Yeah. And, um, and so that's, that's a really difficult thing. I think, you know, I was on, I was, I was done with six months of short-term disability and probably a year into my long-term disability before I came to grips with the fact that I wasn't going back to the classroom. 
Mm-hmm. It took me that long because I was really convinced I could get into remission and then I would be fine. And, and it's because so much of my identity was wrapped up in my career. You know, yeah. um, <laughs> yes, I do. Like Carice uh, mentioned this in the um, episode a few weeks ago that the first thing people ask you when they meet you is, you know, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And uh, that really resonated with me because it's so true. So much of my identity was wrapped up in the fact that I was a good teacher. And so for people to be telling me, you know, you're not a good teacher anymore and you shouldn't even be a teacher anymore. They were stealing something from me without realizing it. That was so damaging. You know, that's, that's an interesting transition because one of the things I know you helped out significantly with is collecting stories from other people in our community, just as a, as a, as kind of to everyone out there who's listening, the way that we work at the nonprofit, it's, it's very, uh, there's a method to this. There's a method to how we do this as people living with these diseases. We will have um, conversations all the time with each other. And that helps us to identify things that are outstanding. So we kind of already know what, what the hot topics are just because we live with these every day. Then once we've identified something, you know, maybe we need to talk about this, like Danielle nominated this topic. The next step is to go out to our community and start asking for more stories. And, it, and the reason is because we understand that what we're experiencing is our our experience. And we want to make sure that we um, can get all diverse perspectives and experiences so that we can then collect these, this information and work towards a solution. So we call this like phase one <laughs> in, our, in our problem solving. And, and then from this, we're going to collect even more stories from you and go back and start to devise some ways to solve this problem. But in saying that, there were a few, yes. right, Danielle, that really stood out. I mean, we really only asked for stories over a period of two or three days and yes. we were, and we got a lot. Um, and I spoke to several people even beyond our list that said, you know, they experienced this, but they're still afraid to come forward. So it, it's definitely not an isolated problem. Mm-mm. I know there was one in particular uh, who, who was similar to what, what you had said. She mentioned that she, her supervisor had transferred her from her retail job from the cashier to stockroom after being notified of her disability and just claiming she wasn't able to perform essential duties. And eventually HR intervened and said, oh, no, 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 no. You're giving her her job back, which was great. So, th- so that was the right thing, right? That was, th- that, mm-hmm. was, that was good. And asking her, I guess, if she needed what her reasonable accommodations were. And, uh, but what ended up happening was the supervisor wasn't happy about that and ended up harassing her and belittling her and instructed other employees to never assist her if she needed support. That that was her experience and ended up getting so upset and depressed and hated work that she quit. Yep. And and that's basically what my employer tried tried unsuccessfully uh to do with me. You know, they tried making me a floating teacher, that didn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, they tried putting me on performance evaluation additional times, that didn't work, and they tried just telling me straight up, hey, we don't want you here. That didn't work. And so then sort of their last resort was just to make my life so unpleasant. You know, I had an email almost every day documenting something that they didn't like. And it was very petty things in some cases. It would be like, you know, I noticed that you were 
away from your classroom too long in the break between classes. And you should try to be in your room the majority of that time. So I wasn't late to class, Mm -hmm. but because it took me a while to walk to the restroom and walk back, I was gone, quote, too long. So it was a lot of these little things and they would just email me constantly, constantly. Here's a thing you did wrong. Here's a thing you did wrong. Here's a thing we don't like. And their goal, whether they realize it or not, is that eventually you will leave on your own. They tried getting rid of you. That didn't work. So now you'll leave on your own because it is just so unpleasant to be there. Yeah. And I have a couple other that I just wanted to, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just to to that point, but there's something you said that just put a, a light bulb in my head. And that was that they kept constantly emailing you with these things. When I do emails, it's because I'm putting, uh, uh, sometimes it's because I'm putting a legal trail on something. Oh, it's exactly what they were doing. Exactly what they were doing. Yeah. So that's And very, at the bottom of every email would say CC to personnel file. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's one of the things that we were going to mention uh, that, that people had said to you there were red flags. That's a red flag. <laughs> that's a red flag. You know, I'm looking at this list and again, I mean, we can't, we could spend all day uh, yeah. mentioning um, some of these, but uh, just a couple like sentences. Uh, I was constantly, constantly belittled and rumors spread about my alleged incompetence. I was laid off as a result of downsizing and then her position was posted publicly uh, uh, for employment, you know, lo- in yes. a, you know, online site. People saying, a lot of some staff treated me differently or left me out of things as a result. Mm -hmm. One of the ones that really resonated with me was a a woman who said that she was told that her absences for doctor's appointments were an unfair inconvenience to the rest of the team. I had that one highlighted as one of those two that I can't believe it. It's well, and I believe it because it, it mirrors my experience, but, but this is a person who had paid leave that was provided by the employer. She was using it in the appropriate way for sick leave, but it was inconvenient to everyone else. Well, that's, that's a common theme. Yes. You, uh, that, that's, that's popping up just in the conversation that we've had. It's not fair to students. It's not fair to the other employees. It's not fair. So it is about the fairness. Yes. Or the perceived fairness. But yeah, that, yeah, the mm-hmm. perceived fairness. I like that. I'm going to write that down. The perceived fairness to others. Yes. Uh, which also makes complete sense why a person might be fearful of ever saying anything in the first place because of all these things we're saying. You know, another one, lazy. That yes. one comes up a lot. Well, you must be lazy. You uh, see a lot of lazy, incompetent, uh, negligent, these type of words in these people's stories because this is what they're being told either by their coworkers or by their supervisors uh, because when they see fatigue, when they see pain, when they see depression, um, all these symptoms that go with chronic illness, especially invisible illness, They don't look at that and say, wow, my employee is in pain. My employee is sick. They say, my employee is lazy. My employee is incompetent. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think that they realize that that is because they have ableism operating in their brains, affecting their thought processes. But, you know, I I taught AP anthropology. um, So Sapir-Whorf's theory comes to mind, this idea that your thoughts influence to your words, which influences your actions because they're have ableist thoughts. It comes out in their language. They don't say you seem fatigued. They say you seem lazy. Yeah. Wow. 
I'm I'm writing profusely here notes. I do this all the time. I always say that for those of you who listen to this podcast. I just because it's just this is how we're going to solve the problem. You know, is mm-hmm. is listening and 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 connecting the dots here. So let's let's jump into. You know, we've talked a lot about what's happening, stories that are coming in of people's experiences, our experiences, and you know what what are we going to do about when we need the these uh, these accommodations and. I had just pulled a, a snippet just as a, a definition here, and this was sent um, just to give a shout out to our friends at Arthritis Research Canada and some of the patient research partners there that we're friends with um, because we were reaching out to other countries and asking for regulations in the workforce so that we can build our data and be able to solve this problem together. So thank you to them for, for um, sending information to us. But um, the, the workplace accommodation is really any change in the working environment that allows a person with limitations in their ability to do a job. So it could be physical workplace, adaptations to the equipment, tools used, flexible work hours, which we talked about, or job sharing, um, well, relocation of the workplace space, <laughs> which wasn't that helpful for you <laughs> because no. you're looking at that. And this was actually written for employers. So that's actually mm-hmm. really interesting to me because that's a suggestion for employers. And they could have just looked at that and said, okay, well, we'll relocate her, not thinking that's a worse solution for you. So that's mm-hmm. interesting in itself. Ability to work from home and a time off for medical appointments. So. That that's what that's kind of um, when we're talking about some reasonable workplace yep. uh, accommodations. And I know you have a lot of additional things to add under this this topic, Danielle. So I'm going to let you take it away. So I think one of the one of the things that I learned through my experience is that most people, unless they're employment lawyers or maybe union advocates, really don't have a lot of experience with workplace accommodations. Um, they don't really know even what they are. And so if you say, well, here's my problem, how can I accommodate that? A lot of times the employer doesn't know the answer any more than the employee does. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of it has to do with correctly identifying essential job duties. You know, one of the differences between a reasonable accommodation and an unreasonable accommodation is whether or not the employee can perform their essential job duties. If I can accommodate you and you can still do these essential duties, then you can still have a job here. But if you can't perform your essential job duties, even with accommodation, then it's not discrimination to say that you can't, you know, continue to be employed in that profession. Your illness has progressed to a point where it just isn't reasonable. And, and we talked a little bit about that, where you just recognize this is outside of my limitations. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. But a lot of people don't correctly identify what those essential job duties are. One of the best examples I've ever seen is someone was talking about if you work in like a stock room, it's very common for the employer to say that the essential job duty there is that the employee must be able to stack boxes. But in reality, the essential job function is that the boxes get stacked. It Mm. doesn't necessarily have to be because someone picks them up and sets them there. Mm -hmm. If If a tool exists that can do it, that the employee operates and it's a reasonable expense, you know, not something that is going to uh, be prohibitively expensive, then that employee is still performing that essential job duty. And because of internalized ableism, all of us, not just employers, have a tendency to look at 
okay, well, if you need to be able to walk to perform this duty, or you need to be able to pick things up to perform this duty, they immediately assume, okay, so then someone with a disability is not going to be able to do this. And that's not always true. You know, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of uh, assistive devices out there that can help you perform your essential job functions, and you may just not even know that they exist. Right. No, that's a really good point. And I just wanted to say, too, as a side note, that uh, the way that we had defined internalized ableism in, in a prior episode is, is simply a fear of becoming or being disabled. So I just wanted to, to preface that because I realized we've been talking about it and we haven't actually defined it <laughs> to you. So um, if you're not familiar, that, that's what we're talking about. It, it, it has to do a lot with that internal struggle in our own being of there's, there's a lot of you know, uh, people who believe that ableism or the, the able-bodied things are set up in our society for able-bodied people. And mm-hmm. so um, we, we tend to struggle with knowing that the world is not set up in our favor. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of where this all is, is stemming from is there's not, it's not generally accepted. It's not considered normal uh, to have any type of disability. So in essence, the employer might be looking at it like you're disrupting the status quo, so to speak. And what we really need to do, which, which again, I'm shouting out to Carice, who, who mentioned this in, that, in the episode on uh, internal ableism, is we need to normalize this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of, one of the things that will solve, solve the problem. Yeah. And we need to, I think, uh, especially the patients, we need to focus more on what our objective is and less on how we're going to achieve the objective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a good example is if you're looking at a job that requires data entry, almost all of them will say, well, you need to be able to type to do this. And if you have rheumatoid arthritis, uh, I know I can't type, uh, mm-hmm. not, not more than a few words because my fingers and hands just don't really work very well anymore, but I can use voice recognition software like nobody's business. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, th- that's a very common tool that most people have on their smartphone um, mm-hmm. that can accomplish getting the data to the place that you need it. But that software cannot organize the data. It can't put it in the correct cell on a spreadsheet. It can't look at it and make any uh, useful conclusions from the information. So you are still essential, you know, in that role, even if you cannot type and push a keyboard. Um, But convincing employers of that, that's a whole other hurdle because most of them will list typing as an absolute essential job duty, which Mm. means that they don't have to accommodate you, uh, you know, for that. That, well, that's a whole, uh, again, got to write it down, whole other breakout (laughs) episode (laughs) because you're right. And their bylaws are their their guidance and and job descriptions, et cetera, that they have within their own facilities. They might need to be updated because yes. that itself gives them the opportunity to go back and say, "Well, we have it right here. Yep. It's in the job description, or it's in." And and you're right. There are many ways to get around those things. I think that is such a valid point and necessary point to pull out of this episode. And one of the other problems, and I don't have a solution for this problem, unfortunately. I wish I did, because then I think I'd make a lot of money. Uh, But but, um, one of the problems that I think you run into is that a lot of larger corporations have HR specialists whose job it is to help employees, accommodate employees, 
Um, they process disability paperwork. They process, you know, accommodations requests. And um, they're usually referred to as like compliance specialists or something along those lines in the United States, at least, referencing the idea that their job is to keep the employer in compliance with um, legal requirements. Most of them, almost all of them, have a background in human resources. They do not have a background in anything to do with disability, patient rights, Mm. anything like that. And so, you know, when the employer says to them, well, but they have to be able to type or they have to be able to lift this heavy box, they don't have any knowledge or background to say, well, but do they? Do they really? Is that actually the objective here? You know, what they're looking at is, oh, yep, says right there, essential job duty, sorry. Right. No, this is, this is really, this is really great. You know, I think that we need to spend more time to, now that we're identifying these issues, going back and reaching back out to the community and, and encouraging people to share more about these experiences. What have you asked for? What was denied? What was granted? So that we can sort through maybe a rec- recommendations or some help with people to be able to ask for things that they need um, in a way <laughs> that it works for them. Because yeah. like you said, it may not match the language. I never found a resource. I'm not saying it's not out there, but I never found a resource that I could go to that said, oh, do you have this diagnosis? Click here. Do you have this mm-hmm. symptom? Click here. Here's the list of accommodations that might help you. Yeah, um, you we know, should. That, that we would should, have been hugely helpful for me. We should work on that. That trans, you know, where that trans uh, transfers us right into sort of knowing our rights and knowing what we can ask for. Uh, you know, I know that I can reach out to our friends at the European League Against Rheumatism, ULAR, they have their countries together in Europe create ULAR Pare, which is all of the nonprofits that sort of reside within the countries in Europe. And uh, our organization was fortunate enough, we had a relationship with them for many years, and they did invite us to Brussels a couple of years ago, us and shout out to Global Healthy Living Foundation, aka Creaky Joints. We were the only two non-European based organizations invited to participate in that. But we learned a lot about their work mm-hmm. in the workplace and some guidance and and a lot of great work that they're doing because in their in, in Europe, there is something called social responsibility law and it protects people specifically thanks to the great work of ULAR on rheumatic diseases in particular. So we'll, we'll reach out to them. And again, we mentioned our, our friends at uh, Arthritis Research Canada, and there's Arthritis Consumer Experts or Joint Health. But we've got a lot of people that we can reach out to. But you also did find some specifics on your rights in, uh, with reasonable requests and accommodations. Yeah. So uh, whenever you're requesting an accommodation in the workplace, the central question is, is it a reasonable accommodation? Um, If it, you know, if you're asking to be excused from essential job duties, then that's going to be considered unreasonable pretty much anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But once you get into the weeds, so to speak, of, okay, the employee is requesting, uh, one of the examples we saw in our patient stories is the employee was requesting a stool to sit on so that they didn't have to stand at a counter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that employer uh, determined that that was an unreasonable accommodation. Um, and so some of these you look at and you go, oh my gosh, how, <laughs> how could they possibly consider that unreasonable? Um, you know, in uh, the um, resources that, um, 
the uh, Art Canada people sent us, um, they provided some information on Canadian law, which I thought was interesting. Um, it said, in order to prove undue hardship, an employer would need to prove that they received information about the employee's limitations, um, explored all possible options, and that the accommodation that was proposed posed an undue risk to the health and safety of the organization's other employees, or that the related cost of the proposed accommodation would greatly impact the viability of the organization. So in other words, if for it to be unreasonable, it has to either make other people sick or put them in danger, or it has to mean that the company is going to go under. Um, and that's so different than yeah. the United States. Um, the Americans uh, Disabilities Act defines um, a reasonable accommodation, you know, as something um, that allows the employee employee to perform their essential job duties without imposing an undue hardship on the employer. Um, and an undue hardship, mm. uh, and it's been challenged in court repeatedly, the general sort of working legal definition right now is that an undue hardship is anything that imposes a significant difficulty or expense. But the employer largely gets to decide what constitutes a significant difficulty or mm -hmm. a significant expense. So like in my situation, um, I one of the biggest things I wanted... Our physical campus had a main building and then it had some outbuildings. And the outbuildings each had their own HVAC system that was completely autonomous from the rest of the building. And they had reserved parking spaces immediately next to their doors. And I wanted to be assigned to teach in one of those outbuildings. I wanted to be able to walk, you know, 10 feet from my car to my room. They all had wheelchair ramps, which I could not say for the inside of the building. And they would have been able to maintain the humidity and the temperature controls that would have helped my um, pulmonary issues. They told me that that was an unreasonable accommodation because it disrupted their um, organizational plan for how their classes would be laid out. In other words, only science classes were in the outbuildings and history classes, which government fell under history, were all in the interior building. And so it would be a disruption and they would have to reprint maps. And that was just way too much of an undue hardship okay. to you know, hit print on a copy machine. So there's not a lot of guidance provided to employees or employers in the United States about you know, how do you know if this is reasonable? I might think that $50 for a piece of equipment is totally reasonable. Um, my employer may say, nope, that's outside of our budget. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, courts tend to, to err on the side of the employer out of an abundance of caution because they're very concerned about this idea of slippery slope or opening Pandora's box. If we agree to $50, well, what about $100? What about $500? Where do you draw the line? Mm -hmm. And so it can be very difficult to prove to any judicial body that your employer knew that the accommodation was reasonable and decided not to give it to you anyway. Mm -hmm. So let's circle back now as we, as we start to, to wrap up um, this final part of the discussion on actually filing a complaint. I know that there's, uh, uh, for obvious reasons, people are fearful of retaliation. Yes, very much um, so. Especially if their complaint is about an accommodation request because they don't, they don't want to work anywhere else. They don't want to find a new job. They just want to be able to do their job at the same organization. 
So, you know, that's fraught with fear of retaliation because, you know, you're going to have to continue working with the people that you have filed a complaint against. Yeah. And we asked people about what they did. And did we have any examples from our stories on how they filed a complaint or how they went about this? No, it's very, very rare in the United States. And I suspect a lot of other places too. For an employee who has been discriminated against um, as a result of a disability to actually do anything about it in terms of a complaint. At my organization, I did file a complaint with HR and they did side with me. Mm-hmm. It didn't accomplish much. Uh, the only result was that my principal had to apologize to me in person and in writing and put the apology in my personnel file. But he wasn't required to remove all of the things that they had put in there about me that weren't true. He wasn't required to stop emailing me every day. He, you know, none of that. Um, he just had to apologize. That was wow. it. So we didn't find any any stories either of people who had gone through the process legally, like getting a lawyer? No, it's extremely rare. I consulted with two different disability attorneys that specialize in workplace law. And both of them told me, you are clearly a victim of discrimination. What they're doing is illegal, but you will not win this. Because my employer had an entire risk management team of attorneys on staff. And he said, you will go bankrupt even just trying. They will bury you in continuances and you will run out of money before you ever see a judge. (laughs) And so they both told me that they thought my case was totally legitimate, but they would not take it because there was no winning it. Wow. And even if you can find an attorney who's willing to take your case, you also have to pay for them out of pocket in most cases. You know, I know with like personal injury and stuff, a lot of attorneys will say, well, you know, we'll fight for you and we only take compensation if you win. That's not usually the case with these because most people aren't suing for compensation. They're suing for their job back or they're Mm -hmm. suing for an accommodation or they're suing to make the harassment stop or whatever, or they would be if they could afford Mm -hmm. it. So you have to pay a retainer up front. You have to pay for your attorney by the hour. And most of these people cannot afford that. Right. And something I I was going to ask you as we're, we're going into this wrapping up here, if you don't mind, how old were you when you started going through all of this experience? I don't mind at all. I was probably about 30. Okay. And the reason I wanted to point that out, and it's not, this is, let me, let me preface this by saying it is not right no matter what age yes. uh, that, that you are. But the reason I, I had brought that up is because the average onset of our diseases in adults is 20 to 40. And mm-hmm. that, it, that is your prime work experience. And if you're not getting what you need, like you said, whether that is delayed diagnoses or accommodations, and you're 25, you know, or you're you're 30 or you're you're 40, that is setting you up for the rest of your working career. And and so it's it's just it's just such an important topic within our community, in part because of the onset age. And then, of course, any age in children. So now we're looking at even people going into the workforce. So it is a very large portion of our population, significantly. Yes. Um, And I mentioned that. So what do we do? (laughs) So you've already said, and thank you for all of the hard research that you've done, Danielle. So appreciate this. It's been a wonderful conversation. You know, I guess if the problem is, if the solution is, well, you either got to deal with it or you got to find a lawyer and that's not working. We're going to have to do something else, right? 
Yeah. I mean, something has to give. It would be great if all disability legislation everywhere could be updated to be really protecting the employee instead Mm -hmm. of protecting the employer. I mean, you know, from me personally, that would be awesome. But even just things like we talked about, about creating resources for people so that they would know what accommodations to ask for would be fantastic. I think also if there were organizations that could help you with your lawsuit or help support legal fees or anything like that, Mm -hmm. that would be fantastic. You know, most of the ones that I researched when I was going through this, when I was experiencing it, they're really, they don't have unlimited resources. You know, they can't fight for everybody. And so they're really looking for cases they know they can win, mm-hmm. which means, and this is my one takeaway, if you are ever experiencing anything like this in the workplace, or even just if you are diagnosed and you are still working to protect yourself in the future, document, 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 document everything. Because they are. Because they are. <laughs> Copies of every email. When you have a face-to-face conversation with someone, send them an email afterwards and say, I just want to summarize our conversation. This is what we talked about. This is the actionable item moving forward. You know, anything like that, you need it in writing and you need dates. You need Mm -hmm. very specific dates. And I, I also think what you said before, adding on, if it's something like typing that is in their bylaws or in their description and you found a solution that enables you to to do your job, I think for sure put that in too. Yes. I had a huge folder that was just photographs of every day's hygrometer readings in my room documenting Mm. how high the humidity was, how high the temperature was, well above what my doctor was asking for with dates and and things like that. Like you, you cannot document too much because when I went in to speak with attorneys, when I went in to speak with my union, you know, the first thing they say is, well, tell me what's going on. And it's so hard to go, okay, here's a year's worth of discrimination. Where do I even start? Mm -hmm. And so having this physical record to be able to say, well, there were 14 instances where they did this. There were 37 times when they said this. It really makes the conversation easier and it makes it uh, much more productive because if you try to rely on your memory especially those of us with brain fog. Right. Um, That's not going anywhere. Right. If in the way that things are in current day, I mean, documenting everything and, and that's definitely what the norm is and the, the one way, I mean, the, the ideal would be to someday that we normalize disability and this won't be an issue, but we've got to come up with something in between. So what's not necessarily working right now versus the ideal. And I think what we've decided for our solution to this conversation and moving forward to sort of that step two is we need to showcase this discrimination. We need to appeal to the masses about the magnitude of its occurrence and its need, uh, the need to fix it. Because if this has happened to you, you are not alone. Yes. You are not alone. <laughs> and we we're I mean, literally what we posted two or three days ago and and the amount of feedback we were getting. And remember, we're an international organization. So we're not looking for just stories from people in the United States. Um, Danielle, did you have something you wanted to add to that? I just wanted to say that when I was experiencing this, I was so deeply ashamed. I did not understand why they were treating me like I was a problem. I thought that I was a good teacher. My 
you know, students thought that I was a good teacher, but the, I was being constantly, I mean, just on a daily basis told that I wasn't good enough, that nothing I did was good enough and that I was a problem. And that is so humiliating, especially when you have been successful, when you have a reputation, you know, professionally. And I think people remain silent and they endure it because they are so embarrassed to tell anyone. Well, you know, if I tell someone and I still worry about this, even Mm -hmm. though I don't work for them anymore. So Mm -hmm. why do I care? Well, gosh, if I share my story, are they going to believe me or are they going to assume, well, she's just saying that and she was probably not very good at her job. And that's how they're getting away with it. Yeah. Is because so many people are so embarrassed or so afraid that they don't talk about it. But you know, if you work in an organization that will discriminate against you, they're discriminating against somebody else. I can almost guarantee you. Good point. Um, So, you know, when I did finally open up and start talking about what happened to me, I got so many stories from my coworkers about I was discriminated against when I was on maternity leave. I was discriminated against when I was trying to be a nursing working mother. You know, I was discriminated against when I broke my ankle. Like just constant, two different people filed workman's comp because they were injured at work and then were treated poorly by the administration. Like it, it wasn't just me. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that it put me in such a better place and really started to make people realize that, that the employees were not the problem in this scenario. So if you are experiencing something like this, I think the best thing you can do is talk about it. Yeah. Talk to your family, talk to your friends, talk to your coworkers, talk to anybody you feel comfortable. Talk to us. You can message me. I'll listen. Right. But tell someone you will feel better. I promise you. And definitely tell us because we are going to continue collecting these stories so that we can make it very known that this is everywhere, that this is a dire issue that needs to be addressed. And the more stories, the more you can share with us, the more information we have to publicize what's happening. We'll keep your identity anonymous. You don't have to worry about, about any of that. But we are valuable. We are valuable contributors to our society. We should not be stymied. Our talent should not be stunted because of our condition and the limitations that could be lifted and allow us to succeed in our community. I'll circle back to end this with my my own self. It's that if I had not found a way to work in a flexible environment, there would be no organization. And I think we're doing amazing things at this organization. So uh, yes, you it, are. You know, it, it, that's just living proof that if you're given the opportunity to succeed with your talents, you could do amazing things. And I know there's millions of us out there that can do amazing things. So please share your stories. You can do this at our social media at Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, which is at IFAI Arthritis. You could also uh, message us privately on any of those platforms. And you could email us at podcast at AIarthritisvoices360.org. Please share this episode with others who can share stories and want to join forces to stop the discrimination because together we are stronger and it is your time to have a seat at the table. So thank you, Danielle, for co-hosting this with me. It's been wonderful. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right. And, uh, you know, you haven't heard the last of this. The conversation's not over just because the podcast is. And Danielle and I will still be working hard on this and we'll be following up with another episode, but we need your stories. So please pull up a seat at the table and let's change the stories of tomorrow together.
Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Join us again on Wednesday for our special breakout episode, where we bring your comments, questions, and ideas to the table. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. 